Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change will pose major challenges for America's military, including... Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have Britt Basil, adaptation consultant with Ecothropic. Also joining us is Tim Watkins in the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. Don't forget to subscribe to us on America Adapts on iTunes and also visit our website at... AmericaDaps.org. Thanks, no and I hope you enjoy the episode. Than climate change. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, I have Britt Basil, adaptation consultant with Echothropic. Hey, Britt. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Doug. We have had a couple conversations, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation because a lot of the guests that I have on the show really are focused on domestic adaptation issues, and you were, your experiences are all over the world, and I think we could have a wide-ranging conversation here, but um, I don't know if you want to just take a moment to sort of kind of introduce yourself, maybe give a little bit of background. Sure. I primarily work with community-based climate change adaptation with a focus on ecosystem management. My work in the last several years has focused on the South Pacific, primarily in Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. So to orient everybody, if you've got Australia and New Zealand, directly north of New Zealand is Vanuatu, and just to the west of that is Solomon Islands. And I've been complementing that with a lot of work in Cuba, which takes on a slightly different twist, but most of my work was originally inspired by Cuba years ago. The digging that I did on you on the internet, the, the Solomon Islands work came up, and I and I saw a short video, and I want to get into that a little bit later, um, just some, a really great video, you know what I'm talking about, but uh, just some interesting work, and I want to just kind of pepper you with questions, but I, I would also like to hear maybe a little bit more, you, you do a diversity of things, and so you do these study abroad courses, you've worked with, with the Nature Conservancy, and you're, are you still consulting with the Nature Conservancy? At the moment, I'm not. I am... Um... The work I do pretty much divides itself into three complementary categories. I work with community-based climate change adaptation, so as a socio-environmental scientist. I work with education, primarily with field studies related to that same natural resource management and climate change adaptation. And then I also work as a visual storyteller and a photographer. And I've taught photography for National Geographic student expeditions for close to a decade. And then I write articles and do different, primarily magazine pieces. You know, I guess looking farther back, you went to Colorado State and got a master's degree in human dimensions, right? Yes. So did you come across the name Dan Decker at all in your universe? Does that name ring a bell? It rings a bell, but I can't tell you why. Okay. Want to fill me in? Well, you know, we when I was at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, we were getting into human dimensions in a really big way, the entire agency. And Dan Decker's out at Cornell. 
and he's kind of like this godfather figure of human dimensions. But he's worked with some state wildlife agencies. And, you know, I actually went to a human dimensions conference in Estes Park in like 2010. I don't know if you happened ah. to. Did you go to that one? That must have been around the corner from you. I was actually talking with a professor at who used to be with Colorado State this morning about that exact conference and about oh, really? the fact that I wasn't able to make it because I was in the middle of graduate work and, and was a little bit overwhelmed at that moment in time, but that it would have been nice to have been there. Well, yeah, it was at that YMCA facility up in the mountains. And, you know, I, I do remember it. it. It was a great location, but for that year, they had record heat in Colorado. It was like the all-time record heat wave was broken by like 12 degrees. It wasn't like one or two. It was like 12. And I just, oh, man. So uh, it still was like 85 degrees, which coming from Florida was quite nice. So, But it's also good for driving that point home, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then I went on to Utah for another conference, and they same thing. Like they shattered their all-time record temperature. Like I was up at 11,000 feet. 85 degrees. So it was quite a summer. But yeah. Human Dimensions, just from the work that you've been doing out. I mean, so what is Human Dimensions? I have a pretty good idea, but I just, you know, are the, the listeners, like it's a, I wouldn't say it's a new field, but it's a very specific one. And I, I think a lot of wildlife conservationists are like really starting to appreciate the topic. So I'm going to take a step back with that. Um, Human Dimensions was a perfect fit for where I started because I came originally through anthropology and a lot of global experience, and I saw all of the environmental issues that I wanted to adjust. And so Human Dimensions was the perfect fit for that because it understands that we live in an anthropogenic landscape. We live in a landscape that's impacted by people. There's probably virtually zero part of our planet that is not in some way influenced by our actions. And so in managing the landscape and managing natural resources, we need to understand that it's not a vacuum, except for the few examples where in the U.S. we've got our national parks, which are completely removed, except for tourism and, and the management, from populations. But basically everywhere else it's landscape and people working side by side. So if you want to protect those resources, you have to work with the people that depend on those resources for their livelihoods, for, for their homes. And so Human Dimensions is taking that step back and looking at every single problem through that lens of how do we work with the people who work in those landscapes. And I very much take on that perspective with all of the work that I do. Well, it's, it seems like one of those areas that, well, of course you should be doing this, but in reality, you know, like the wildlife management schools and such, they they some are focusing on it more. But it, it seems like it's starting to come into its own in the last decade. So that, that's an encouraging thought. But it seemed like a no brainer thought, too, for uh, what what you're trying to do with conservation. For me, it's it's been a natural evolution. And I'm grateful for that. But I've quickly gone into the new paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> well, wildlife management agency, the new paradigm, if we give them 50 years, they'll, they'll, they'll finally <laughs> catch up to that. They'll catch up. They're doing some great work, too. So I have some questions for you on some things that I've dug around on you, which I think are just really cool. But if there's areas that you really want to just talk about, that's the whole point of the podcast is that we're talking about adaptation and your unique experiences. And we didn't really, you know, touch base much in advance. But, you know, I, I want to make sure that this is we're covering some topics that you're interested in doing but you know the Solomon Island work that you did I went to some of the stories that you've written on this I saw the video and I think the video um, is helping people help themselves Solomon Islands 2014 right that's the, a, a short video that you put together yes which was completely not professional it was really just wanting to share visually a little bit more of the work that we had done and it was specifically for donors 
So not a professional production, but it, they are all of my images, and I feel like it does does communicate a little bit more of what it's about instead of it makes it a little bit more concrete. Well, you are being very modest, even though I mean I think pretty I don't even think there was any live video, but you just you had that style like you were just using photographs and you'd fade in or fade out. What is it the, the Rick Burns effect or something? But I just thought it was fantastic, and you have a fantastic uh, narration voice, and so. I normally Thanks. skip around on these kind of things, but I sat there and I listened to the whole thing and I just thought, wow, this is really great just for having photographs. And so part of this, when I promote the individual podcasts, I'm going to have links that I'm going to ask you to share, but I definitely you know, have that YouTube video just because I think it goes a long way into explaining what you did on that island. And so that island, you took a sailboat to get to this island that really is in a remote part of the world, right? It is. I work with an organization called Ocean's Watch that's based in New Zealand. And they work primarily in Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands each year. They do expeditions based on sailboats to be able to get to those regions that don't get government assistance or a lot of other, well, their own governments or international assistance. And so Chris Bone is the founder of Ocean's Watch, and he has a very interesting story himself. He's been out there now for, I think, eight or nine years doing really great work with communities very much on their terms. And so I partnered up with them. I'm officially their climate change program director. I have been now for about three years. Um, but that video is about the first season when I was out in the field with them. And so that region is the Tomotu province of the Solomon Islands. It's geographically much closer to Vanuatu, and it's pretty much as remote as you can get. You um, fly into... If you're flying in to meet the boat, you fly into Haniara, which is the capital of the Solomon Islands, have to wait for a flight that only happens twice a week and can often be canceled. My flight was canceled because the grass at the airport was too tall. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got to wait four extra days and then flew into Lata. And then from the capital city, you then, to get to the first village we worked with, it's a 36-hour sail across open Pacific. And the islands are so remote, there's no commerce, there's no movement of people, really. Wow. It's traditional villages as they've always lived. There's a boat that's supposed to come by every couple of weeks, and it's usually four months between between stops. We um, There was one Solomon Islander who had been visiting the island of Buma, which is actually on uh, Vanikoro. And he came from another nearby island that's... Oh, it's been a while now, but off the top of my head, it's maybe a 12-hour sail. And he had been trapped on this other island for over a month because there was no way for him to get home. There's just no transportation. With the Solomon Islands, you know, I was living in Australia, and I heard a bit more than I normally would about the Solomon Islands, but I just don't know that much. And so there's obviously indigenous languages, but are there – do they speak English or French, or is there any other language? I mean, how did you communicate? So Solomon Islands are part of Melanesia, and they – have an incredible diversity of of languages. On each island, there's multiple completely distinct languages. Many of them are becoming extinct daily, or maybe not daily in the Solomon Islands, even though that is the global phenomenon, but on a regular basis, they are, are vanishing. Throughout the Solomon Islands, there is Solomon Islands pidgin, uh, pidgin English, that pretty much everybody speaks. And then a lot of education does happen in English. So people who have received more of a Western education do speak a decent bit of English. That tends to primarily be the men, with the women speaking much less. So and you were, so, I'm sorry, go on, go on. Sorry, so during that work, um, I, at the time, 
first coming on and primarily just trying to help. They've worked with um, fisheries and with sustainable livelihoods with coconut oil production. And I was very much helping them get the climate change program moving. So that was my angle. And I came in with the English I have. And, and by the time I left, I was able to speak rudimentary pigeon at least and do some basic pre- presentations in pigeon that, that made everybody smile. <laughs> but <laughs> I kind of did it. Um, and then cool. we were working with translators to make sure that things were well understood. So what was the total time you were there? That trip was six weeks, I believe. No, three months. That's not bad. Not bad I'm pretty sure it was that. three months. And then the expeditions go out for eight months. So you're the climate change coordinator for Oceans or like adaptation program manager. Technically the climate change program director. Well, what, when I was reading about the Solomon Islands and the people in the video, it, you know, it occurred to me is that you're talking about adaptation and they went through this process. But when you had conversations about climate change in general, you know, obviously in Western countries, people's perceptions and the ability to explain what it is might be much different. So what could you give an example? Like, how did they even think about climate change? Is it just carbon in the air or landscape changes? I'm just very curious about that. Well, they definitely are not thinking about carbon in the air. Right. Okay. Um, there's been a the this the sound quality just you just cut out a little bit. I think I stepped back from the mic. Sorry about that. Okay, no worries. Just to make sure we're good. So they're definitely not thinking about carbon in the air so much. There has been quite a bit of information on the radio, which is the only real well that and people talking to people um, are really the only ways that that information has gotten back to the villages. And just to give people a little bit more of a of an image as well. We're talking very traditional villages of small groups of extended family living in traditional, essentially grass huts that they rebuild and use the materials from their land. Everything that they, they depend on comes from the gardens, the small agricultural plots that they have and from the reefs. So that's the context we're talking about. So they've get, got some information that comes in through radio and that information has been great, though it's also led to many misconceptions about what climate change means. What, on the flip side of it, in the American context, we tend to be much more disconnected from our natural environments. Mm -hmm. And we're buffered from a lot of those impacts. Whereas these villages that depend so incredibly on their direct resource base, they feel all those changes a lot more they see those changes that are happening. And when we talk about, especially the Pacific and climate change, the most common topic of conversation is sea level rise and vanishing islands, which is a whole different topic. What is impacting them most on a daily basis are all of those subtle changes in climate that impact how their crops are growing and what pests they find in their garden. And when the storms come, the storm surge being that much more intense because of sea level rise or the rain changing. So they don't know exactly when they plant and when to harvest and all of the the cultural ceremonies that are intricately weaved into those, those patterns that happen throughout the year that are now not something that they can expect. So you've got not only breakdown of their resources, their food security, their water security, but you also have challenges to the social fabric and traditional culture. And so for them, that's what climate change really is. It's not, it's not about carbon. It's them not knowing what to expect anymore. And 
to add to that, the thing about these cultures is that they and their, all of their ancestors have experienced natural disasters. What, and they have really great mechanisms for how to take on those natural disasters. What's happening, it's not just climate change that's impacting these communities, it's global change as well. So it's the change in society, it's the influence of capitalism, it's the influence of media, and they're even things like population growth right now with the incredible advantage of improved medicine and lengthened livelihoods and reduced child mortality, you've got more population relying on the same resource base and that resource base is compromised. So it's all of these factors that are happening at the exact same time. You know, that's interesting. And I'm just, is it, would this be accurate that you think of like the United States, a lot of the discussion about climate change and climate change impacts is, you know, the future impacts of these things. And I think more so we're talking about things that are happening now, but it's still an issue of the future. Whereas Solomon Islands, it's the, I guess their attitudes are like, they are adapting to it now. I mean, is that the, the mentality is like, this is just something we're dealing with now. It's very much something that they're dealing with now. And it's something that what part of my work there is helping them understand that it's something they can expect to get more and more intense. And I think really the truth of it, Doug, is that everywhere we're experiencing those impacts now and we're not necessarily giving them their due about how they are related to, to climate change and how they are actually climate impacts. So one of the most interesting things, and please clear this up if I interpreted this wrong, is that as you went and you did at a plant, adaptation planning with the people there that you had this workshop and you distilled it down into these actions, which I thought was just fascinating. I've been involved with those workshops before. And I mean, it was totally distilled down to these basic things. And oh my gosh, to get in a room full of people in the US and distill it down in such a manner would be so refreshing. But you had a picture of like the the chart of what actions they are. And it I got the impression that the women came up with their own and then the men came up with their own. Was that an accurate interpretation? It wasn't accurate. Well, to an extent, um, one of the issues of dealing in a lot of different cultural contexts is making sure that there's appropriate gender inclusion. And especially in Solomon Islands, it's a very patriarchal society and women tend to not have much voice, even though they're the primary resource managers and also the most, most vulnerable to many climate change and other impacts. As part of that specific program, to make sure that women and youth got an adequate voice, we did all of the workshops in two groups because the women will tend to defer to the men if they're all in one one workshopping circle. Mm-hmm. So we did make – we figured out what all the men's priorities were. Then we made that plan. We figured out what all the women's priorities were. We made that plan, action steps, who was responsible for them, when they were going to happen, what they needed, all of those details. And then those two groups came together to be able to support each other. And so when they came together, did they just, did you facilitate, like, let's get a final list or, I mean, how did that work? Um, In that particular instance, it was the first time, it was the pilot of the Ocean's Watch program. And so in that particular instance, we kept those plans separate and we we helped them identify who was in charge of similar components. And of those five actions that they promised to do in the next year, I think three or maybe four of them were the exact same for both the men and the women. And so it turned into a a bigger team of responsible people. So there were the two men that were in charge and the two women that were in charge. And then the way that these villages work, everybody ideally and often does work together on those. And I found that when I went back or not when I went back, but when we did the follow-up and 
on how those actions had actually been implemented, that it was really the entire community and the community had really taken ownership of it. And it didn't look as clearly laid out of these two people did X and these two people did Y. Well, were you participating in both the, the male and the female workshops or did you did men lead the, the male workshop? I facilitated all of them given my position with Ocean's Watch, mm-hmm. which is another challenge and a very interesting topic of conversation of how my gender has played in with my work around the world. Hmm. That, so they, I'm assuming that you, you, you got productive results even out of the, the male group, and but did you encounter any sort of like cultural sexism or did they just kind of go along really, I guess, with open arms? Ah, uh, can you re- rephrase that question? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so was were did you have any difficulty with either of the genders because they were separate? Is that appropriate way to ask it? Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Ah, lead me here. I, I'm probably being uh, gender insensitive um, in my question, but uh, I've just I'm fascinated. Like even the results that came out of the different groups, like was was one group, you know, like okay, they're getting it, and the other group is more in line with what this the the people need. And so to um, to me, that's the, a fascinating component of the process. Ooh, um, it was. Well, okay. So the first thing is in that society, people have their daily roles that are very separated by gender still mm-hmm. of to certain extents. In some, some ways it's similar, like both. Well, in these societies, the garden is the, the family agricultural pl- plot. So when I refer to their gardens, that's what I'm referring to. Okay. So for example, both men and women work in the garden. Women tend to do a lot more of the daily labor and the hard labor. The women tend to deal more with water. The women tend to be more responsible for harvesting certain resources, whereas the men tend to be tend to be responsible for fishing out in open water um, or some of the harder harder manual labor, possibly. And so each each gender tends to have their specific specialty. So of course, those are the things that they're thinking about more. One of the things that was really intriguing to me and actually made me question a lot of my own perspectives in the best of ways was the men tend to have, especially in the age bracket that we are working with, we try to get a good age range, but in these workshops, they were probably 1920 at the youngest and then going up until mid fifties, early sixties. So in that age bracket still, regardless of what might be currently shifting in the country, the men tend to have more education than the women, more Western education, not more education in general, more Western style education. And so as a result, me coming in for the first time working in Melanesia and having come from more of a Western context, despite my experience around the world in, in varied culture, cultures, it the men got the methodologies that I came in with, that I came armed with. They got them much more easily. So I sat down and was like, oh, so we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and they got X, Y, and Z done. And then I sat down with the women, and it wasn't that straightforward because they hadn't been trained through a Western-style education to think hmm. things through that way, which was a great learning for me about not being so attached to those Western-style methodologies and really recognizing that that's what they are as much as we try to escape that paradigm. And one of the best moments is that one of the activities is – 
the groups need to draw a map of the resources. So they draw, draw their village and they draw where the homes are and where they get their fish from and what's important for cooking. So looking at mangroves that they might cut for fire where it would and where their gardens are and laying it all out so they can see in a more visual way what is actually important to them and what they depend on on a daily basis. And so we think about drawing a map typically in our Western society and we think about looking at it from above mm-hmm. a map. Whereas the women, I left them for a few minutes, let them start their map, and I came back, and they had drawn a cross-section of the island. Hmm. And it was perfect. (laughs) And it was just such a – and it was probably a better way to represent the resources that they actually have than my flat coming from from above map could have possibly been. So it was a good reminder about that cultural relativity. Well, now from the video, it looked like when you actually got into implementing the actions that – Pretty much everyone got involved. Or, I mean, what what was the reality? I mean, you had children. It seemed like women and men were all participating. And when you, I, I'm, I'm visualizing that on the hilltop when they were putting in that specific plant to kind of help with erosion. Well, the way so it's it's village society, and in these societies, the chief makes all the shots, calls all the shots, and then you have. Activities affect the entire community, and there isn't the focus on individualism so much that we tend to find in our culture. So there's that component of it. And then you also have the component of, I forget what the population of Boma is right now, but ballpark 150, I want to say. And of that, obviously, it wasn't 150 people that came to all the workshops or that were interested. There were a handful of people that were interested in it and very few people who really wanted to be community leaders pushing those efforts forward. So what you're referring to was working with contour planting to help some erosion issues, which is a bigger, bigger topic. Mm -hmm. And the key, key parts of the climate change committees is what we refer to the groups that actually came together to do the planning that would then be, the 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 middle people to bring it back to the rest of the village and really be spearheading those actions, be the voice. Self-selected members from those committees are the ones that came. But in that, it's completely inclusive. So anybody else that was interested that wanted to come could also come. And then that um, one aspect of their planning was the contour plans. And then another aspect of it was replanting mangroves. And that was touching back to something we were previously talking about that was the interesting thing a year later is that it wasn't these two people were responsible for X and these two people were responsible for Y. They did it according to the way their village works, which is everybody's responsible for the ocean that's directly in front of their house. And so these, the men's group and the women's group and I, we checked, we approved the plans with the chief and then they presented it back to the village, got the village buy-in. And then thanks to that village buy-in villagers went out and, implemented those actions as they corresponded to the land that they were in charge of. So instead of these two people were responsible for replanting mangrove, everybody planted mangrove. Okay, so I saw the photographs of the the mangrove forest, and the the impression you get from the video is that there was probably more success in people implementing the actions that they created in those workshops, but it's been a little bit of time, and so is is the goal to go back, or have you heard of updates? I mean, what's the situation? Are they following through on on what they agreed to do? Well, the Ocean's Watch expedition is just starting for this year, so they'll be revisiting not only Buma, but the other, other villages that we've worked with, the other communities. And we'll see how they're doing this year. We have the results from last year that were 
promising in certain ways. There were certain things that they definitely got a lot of traction on and other things that absolutely nothing happened on, which definitely speaks to what the priorities are in the community. All of the programs we do, with Ocean's Watch at least, are designed to be three to five years. And the entire goal is that so many aid programs wind up creating more dependence, which <laughs> I could tell, tell you some great stories about that. Right. Um, but our entire structure is trying to really empower local local stakeholders with the knowledge to continue to implement these things. And so the goal is to not have them needing us for more than three to five years maximum. So we can start building up that local capacity, get the ball rolling, and then step back. And we're, we're still in the area if they want to be in touch with us or get further feedback on things or a little bit of support. But the role is to not have to continually be supporting these programs because it's not sustainable for them in the long term. So you've talked about this in articles and you have the video, but I'm just curious because there's the issue of are you doing this in a vacuum? And so, you know, the World Bank and some of these international aid organizations who aren't necessarily working with these specific communities probably just have a strong interest to see if these are successful. And so is the goal to sort of if you want to share these in other communities that could do something similar? I mean, what's the approach there? Oh, most definitely. And actually, so we've spoken a lot about Ocean's Watch. However, I also work, there's a project called Rescue, which is being implemented all over the Pacific with very similar, similar goals. I started their work with them on the island of Afate, which is the capital of Vanuatu, working specifically with Ridge to Reef Resilience and Climate Change. And then we've got another project that's starting up in Western Solomon Islands this fall that has very very similar methodology and also also goals. These are examples of projects that are springing up everywhere. And there's the goal of not of trying to make sure that they're not disjointed, that everybody really is learning from the best practices of everybody else so that we're continuing to build a movement and also to streamline those methodologies. One of the biggest issues is you have a small village that has issues and you have many different organizations coming in trying to help them from different angles and getting the same information again and again and again right, and, right. and saying, well, let's do this. And then this organization is saying, let's do this. And then you have people kind of throw their hands up in the air of not knowing which way to turn. And it's it's too much of theoretically a good thing. So Ocean's Watch is not a vacuum. It's part of a much bigger movement that's happening that has been much stronger in, well, very strong in the Pacific. And it would be interesting to see how one of my current goals is seeing how to bring some of that very large quantity of, of information that we've gathered and, and ways that we can actually make some positive impact and bring that more back into this hemisphere and specifically into the Caribbean area and Central America, Mexico. Oh, I already in my head have two or three papers that I want you to write out of this process. <laughs> um, and I guess that's one of my questions. There's a few more things I want to talk about with this specific example, but the lessons learned from this, I'm just curious because I've been involved with pretty much, you know, domestic adaptation. And I think it's a much different beast, although there are some similarities. And I'm just curious you're familiar with what's going on in the U.S., I think, to some degree. I, I, I just don't know, and so please correct me. But what lessons do you think we could learn in the U.S. on these approaches out there? And, I mean, my gut would be like, okay, well, since they're living it, really, it's just it's in their faces. I mean, I think you just bring a different attitude to it. But, I mean, is there what, – what would you recommend, you know, communicating to adaptation planners in the U.S.? Ironically, I was on a phone call this morning with a colleague of mine, Jess Thompson, 
who is a professor. Okay. So she and I were talking about that specific thing because she's worked a lot more with adaptation in the U S and we were, we were comparing notes essentially on how it really does boil down to the same issues of people, identity, place, confidence that what they're, what they're going to do is actually going to have an impact and how all of these higher level agreements like the Paris talks, et cetera, are all fundamental for making, for supporting grassroots change, but how really, whether it's in the U S or if it's in the Pacific or if it's in, in some part of rural Mexico, it comes down to the people and their identity and their love for the land and their choice on what's going to happen in the local context. And all of those local changes is what's really going to get, get that ball moving and make that change and that adaptation happen. In the workshops that I've been in, I think of like the adaptation policies or plans that we kind of come up with, but there's there's such a distance between even the mid-level policymaker and like who is actually doing something on the ground. And that I think is a major issue in the U.S. It's that there's there's such a disconnect. And I think of the workshop that you led. Well, then a week, four weeks later, they actually went out and did it. And so you're taking ownership of some of these actions that you've kind of come up with, and that that's a valuable thing. And we'll and we'll see there. To be totally honest, it's been very, very tempting to work in areas like rural parts of the Solomon Islands because the government policy is to empower local resource management, community-based natural resource management. So it's facilitated. Those policies are in place that makes it realistic. And so people can do it what they want. They can decide that they need more mangrove in front of their house. They can go out and plant more mangrove. (laughs) They don't have to go through all the levels of bureaucracy that can definitely have their place, but can also make things take a lot longer and be more difficult to do. In the U.S., I feel like it's a similar – I think it also comes down to – to people taking ownership over their decisions, their lives, and what they can directly have influence over. And that could be changing the energy sources of their houses or where they're getting their food from or starting community gardens or changing the source of electricity for for a small town would be some concrete actions. Yeah, but I mean, just let's say a local planner that's being told, okay, you need, you need to develop adaptation actions for this community, and then they can, but then you bring in NEPA and environmental rules and regulations, and then there's the local property developers, and it gets complicated very quickly, and what is a sound adaptation action? Is that actually being applied, I guess, in the original way that, that was planned? And so th- there's quite a disconnect in all that. Plan- but that's, I think, it's independent of adaptation planning. It's true of any planning, but... I just the purity of it. It sounds like it's it remains to be seen what's going on with Solomon Islands, but just the purity of like taking ownership of doing these things that that was very interesting to to see that process unfold. Yeah, and I think that in the in the U.S. it's definitely a challenge, but I don't think it's unsurmountable by any chance. Well, the resources are there, so that that's a, a different thing too. Well, yeah. uh, when I was in Australia, what was coming up quite a bit, and this was like the mid aughts is you hear about these negotiations that some of these South Pacific islands are having with larger countries about sea level rise and where they're going to go. Has that come up with the Solomon Islands yet or any of the other countries that you're you're dealing with? And so these are these immediate things that they want to deal with and you want to maintain the integrity of cultures and lifestyles. But, at, you know, 50 years on, are are they having those tough conversations? Were you part of that? Well, I was not so much part of that. In Solomon Islands, there's a combination of highlands and atolls. The high islands, 
it's not so much of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, bigger storms are certainly an issue. And it is a huge conversation, but I haven't been so much engaged in that aspect of it because it's not my specialty. We, when I worked at the National Park Service, they hired a cultural resources adaptation coordinator, which I thought was just a really cool hire that the Park Service did. That was yeah. Commitment, um, Marcy Rockman. actually need to get her on this. Um, but I just imagine folks living in communities that, let's say you are negotiating to leave, it's just it must give such heartburn to the cultural resource people. It's like, okay, I'm trying to hear to help you now, but longer term, we're throwing in the towel in some ways. So that, that just that's a tricky thing to deal with. It's a very tricky thing to deal with, and we'll see we'll see what direction things go, and hopefully we can get our act together before too much of that is actually necessary. So the work, I, I just, um, we, I think we covered the, the Solomon Islands, and I think it's just, it remains to be seen. I thought it was just an, an excellent story, and I hope you keep sharing that. Um, I don't know if you, you, you make an effort to, I mean, you use the video for, I guess, fundraising, but it, it, is there other efforts? Do you, are you sharing that message at conferences and such? To some extent, most of it has been through the storytelling branch of what I do, getting it out through through articles. There's an article in National Geographic Traveler India last July, I think, that tells about that story from a little bit more humanistic perspective. And then there there's some other pieces online. There's a piece with New Zealand Herald that mm-hmm. came out, and there's another one through Cornell Sailing that, that explains it. And I'm sure that there's a lot more that can be done. Well, that's so. a nice pivot. You consider yourself a storyteller, too. You're officially a storyteller. And what does that mean? If you had to explain, you're telling the story of adaptation. I mean, what mediums are you considering using? I mean, what is telling the adaptation story? Well, huh. I, I think about storytelling as part of what I do. And I guess I consider pretty much everything I do, I I see myself as being a bridge in some way. And I consider storytelling to be another way in which I'm a bridge of trying to bring those stories to people who can hopefully learn from them. And it's all about sharing our stories and learning from each other and creating more of that social network and being able to see what might be different, but what might be similar and how we can benefit from lessons that everybody else is learning. And so I do that a lot through images. I do that through writing. I do that through education, even though that doesn't technically fall under the the umbrella of storytelling. You'd mentioned Jess Thompson. She's a professional uh, science. Well, I mean, how would you describe science communicator? We actually, I recruited her to speak at when I was in Florida. We had a climate change course, and I, I just met her. And so, can you come speak to the course? And, but, um, what would you sort of categorize what she does? Jess Thompson and I, well, we actually reconnected today after not having spoken in about five years. Oh, wow. What a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, she works primarily, to the best way I could describe her, as a climate change communicator. She is a social scientist. Helping helping communities, helping organizations, national parks, etc., strategize for adaptation and communicate that message. Though once again, I probably am not in a good position to speak for her. <laughs> I should check in with her. You know, when I knew her, she was in Colorado, but I think she had to move to Michigan or something. She got. I mean, it was a great opportunity, but I'm like, I'm like, you had to move from Colorado. <laughs> I know. Well, she she sounds like she's doing really really well. Oh, she good. is quite happy with the change. Excellent. We've covered a lot of ground here, but again, I had a couple other talking points, but some of our previous conversations with, you know, the idea of storytelling, we've talked about, you know, using film and TV as uh, mediums to communicate this issue. And it's it's just, I'm assuming it's something that you're going to continue to pursue, right? Most definitely. 
So any what's in the pipeline? Can you share anything? Um, nothing yet, but let's ch- touch base in a couple <laughs> of weeks and see what's up. Okay, all right. <laughs> and so what's next for you? You do everything. As I joked the other day, you have this lifestyle. It's like, ah, oh, Cuba, you know, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu. And so you've, I think you've got Cuba coming up, right? I do have Cuba coming up. I'll be in Cuba for most of the fall and the better part of the winter. And you've been there before. I have. I've spent a lot of time in Cuba. I, All of my work with climate change adaptation and agroecology and watershed management all really was inspired by Cuba. There's a documentary called The Power of Community, which I haven't seen in probably eight years, so it'd be interesting to revisit it now. But the impact that it had on me at the time was that essentially when the USSR collapsed, Cuba had been really dependent on on Russia for imports, for fossil fuels that fueled agriculture, for for everything. And so when that collapse happened, Cuba was really left without, to put it mildly, in that it was called the special period, quote unquote. Hmm. And during that time period, I've been told that the majority of the population lost up to 30% of their body weight because there just wasn't food and people went to desperate measures. So in the documentary, it's compared to peak oil, which of course is no longer the big topic of conversation as we've moved on to fracking and climate change issues. However, people had to come up with a solution. And so they started to look at what they had and what they had was traditional land management, sustainable agriculture and organic agriculture that didn't require those big inputs of fossil fuels. And in a lot of ways, agroecology, also referred to in some places as very heavily related to permaculture, is what saved the country. Hmm. And so after all of my work with photography and storytelling and education and touching into international development around the world, I came across that story and I went, you know what? That, that is something that we could actually all really learn from. And so Cuba started my my path in a lot of ways, and now I'm looking at ways to tie some of that community-based resource management back into Cuba and see if there are ways that I can use my experience to help support in some way as they're going through the massive transition that they're going through now. So in terms of the climate change and natural resources, that's the direction. And then we're also launching a semester abroad with Carpe Diem Education that I spent all year last year and, and a lot of love designing that launches in September. And then I also have a field study about Cuban agriculture, ecology, and climate change in Baracoa in eastern Cuba that is accredited and yada, yada, that will happen in January. I want to see the agenda for that course. That sounds so cool. I want to go take it. Come um, on. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So do you speak fluent Spanish, I assume? I do. Yeah, that I might, I've Spanglish, so I, I probably wouldn't do as well. You know, completely unrelated to adaptation, and I don't even know if you're a vegetarian, but do you get good ropa vieja actually in Cuba? You can get good ropa vieja in Cuba. Most of it is not made from red meat because red meat is highly rationed unless yeah. you're paying with the convertible peso. Okay. Well, it's something my wife makes, and I absolutely love it. And you go down to Miami, and of course, they're using real beef. But uh, I always thought, I wonder what it's like in Cuba. Um, but uh, It can be delicious. Yeah, I'm sure. And some good salsa dancing, too. Um, I, my wife actually got to go to Cuba before things really opened, like 2003, 2004, just as it was kind of opening a little bit. And I was so jealous she got to kind of experience it as it's really starting to open a lot more. 
it's an incredible country, and it's all about the people. Well, what you just described, what you're doing, I as we're wrapping this up, I would encourage you. You should. I, you, I don't know if you already do have this, but your own YouTube channel, and you should be doing updates and sharing some of these things like in real time. Because I mean, there'd be plenty of us that would follow you and don't turn it into some massive project that you might not do at the end of it. But uh, you, you know how these all these different mediums are out there, and just that all sounds great. And I would love to just get regular updates on what you're doing with these things. So. Well, thanks, Doug. I asked my guest if there are any resources, websites, groups, or shout-outs that you want to give before we wrap this up. Is there any groups you just absolutely love or just things that you're doing that you want to share? And I'm, like I said, I'll, I'm going to put some links to things on my website when I host the podcast, but anything else like that? Well, I guess the biggest shout out and recognition is just for the incredible network of people that I know around the world who are doing great work. And also for all the students that I've worked with who are so hungry to learn more and hungry to make really positive, positive movement with everything we're confronting together. And I'm really grateful for the people in my world. And I'm really grateful for all the passion, all the ability that they, they bring to the table and continue to bring to the table, whether they're certain villagers in the Solomon Islands or PhDs that work in Australia. We, we have, have an incredible, incredible global community working on these issues. Well, okay. Well, it just makes me happy to know that someone like you is out there doing these things, and you're out there in the much broader universe. I've I've actually learned a ton here, and I, and I don't mean actually. It just it's I it doesn't occur to me how rigid you know the the, the U.S. way of doing things is, and so uh, it's it's things that I uh, hopefully I'll digest and bring back to what I do. But uh, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we I'm sure we'll be in touch and safe travels to Cuba. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Doug. I look forward to being in touch. Bye, everyone. Everyone, we're back. It's Doug Parsons with America Daps, a climate change podcast. It's your favorite part of the show, the Adaptation in Wine Power Hour with Tim Watkins. Tim, are you out there? I am indeed. How are you doing, Doug? What type of wine are you currently drinking? I am drinking a Sauvignon Blanc from Chile, and the vineyard is Conosur. And their line is bicicleta, or bicycles. And um, I picked it because I thought, wouldn't it be fun to drink a wine that markets itself as being sustainably made with low carbon footprint? And part of the deal here is that the folks who grow the grapes and harvest the grapes ride bicycles around the property instead of presumably greenhouse gas emitting vehicles. So three cheers for them. And uh, it's a it's a lovely wine. It's nice and cold on a hot day in the end of August. Wow. So there you have it. What are you drinking? Well, what I'm drinking is a Walnut Crest Cabernet Sauvignon 2014, which I'm sure is probably one of the cheaper wines that you can get at my local convenience store. But it's a, I'm having ribs tonight, so that that'll a red is what I, I think I needed for it. So yeah, very nice. Well, here's the cheap wine. I think my bottle was uh, just under ten bucks. <laughs> Excellent. You admit that on the air. Good for you, Tim. You and I. Uh, how's your week been? Uh, it was very nice. I was actually uh, out on vacation. I think you know last time we talked, I just come back from vacation in Scotland. So it seems like I'm all over the place, but it's not true. But yeah, we just came uh, came down from New Hampshire. We were up there all week. Oh, excellent! Yeah, it does seem like that. You know, you federal type. You, that's what I guess what you guys do. So, <laughs> well, I you, rest assured, I have now used up all of my vacation hours. So, 
Okay, so now, now I can count on you being around for each That's of these right. things. That's right. Okay. That's right. Well, it's been a week, busy week for me. You know, I've recorded several of these. I have, people probably don't realize these aren't live, and we record them. And I've got multiple recordings and actually got introduced to quite a few folks who are going to be on the podcast. I'm quite excited about that. I think we'll have a very interesting lineup heading into the fall. So that's definitely going to keep me busy. So, yeah, it was a busy week. People keep suggesting names. It's just it's like coming out of the blue. So uh, keep them coming. Everyone who's listening, please contact at americadaps at gmail.com. So, Tim, we had talked before about focusing on something specific. And with all this vacation time that you're involved in, you had brought up this really cool article about this ski resort. I forgot the name of the ski resort, but they're based – was it the Canadian ski resort that bought the uh, the Vail Resort, or was it vice versa? <laughs> Spoken like a true Floridian, Doug. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, what's interesting is ski resorts are pretty expensive operations, and they require cold temperatures, and – Ideally, lots of natural snowfall, but if they don't get it, they can make their own. But, you know, what, the amount of money they can make and what kind of success they have can vary a lot from year to year, depending on, on the weather and the climate during that season. And as climate change starts to affect temperatures and snowfall, you know, it, it can really start to affect the long-term bottom line of places. And so I'm, I'm kind of interested in how ski resorts and the economies around those resorts are dependent on prevailing local climate and what they have to do to adapt to ongoing climate change. And so a lot of ski resorts are starting to look at, you know, what are activities that we can offer to paying customers that don't require snow and cold temperatures? And they're starting to look at things like, you know, downhill skiing on artificial surfaces that can be done all year round, you know, even during the summer or during the winter if it's a bad snow year. And those artificial surfaces might be these sort of plastic tiles that they can put out or even grass skiing, which is something I've never done, but I first, you know, saw it and learned about it, I think, back in the early 1980s. So that's been around for a while. But yeah, the particular story that you're referring to is... Uh, Whistler and Blackcomb Resorts, which are outside of Vancouver. And I think they're the largest ski resort in all of Canada. They're certainly the most popular. They were the location of the Winter Olympics a few years back. Everybody who's not a flatlander from Florida apparently uh, knows that that is a major ski resort uh, and a destination resort. And yeah, um, Vail, which of course everybody knows about in the United States, uh, is a major owner of multiple ski resorts in the United States. And um, they, I guess, I don't know if the deal is final. Uh, it was certainly reported in the newspaper that they have offered to buy out Whistler and Blackcomb. And that's going to inject all sorts of money into Whistler and Blackcomb that gives them the opportunity to try new new approaches to doing their business in an era of climate change in ways that are adaptive. And so... You know that I think that's good for them. They can uh, they'll have more of these resources, financial resources, to to try out new ways of of running the ski business. So it's kind of an interesting little story there. Well, you know, go back a sec. You mentioned that they're doing these new things like you know skiing on grass or these new kind of tools to actually doing skiing. You know, there might actually be an expansion of skiing opportunities as the climate changes. You know, think about it. Some of these things you could probably they might do it in areas that they had never even skied before. So. No. Yeah, exactly. You know, you just have to decide whether it's really skiing 
If you're going down a mountain that's covered in hard plastic or going down a grassy field. But it's it's definitely something. <laughs> and hey, if people are paying for it, then those businesses are succeeding at adapting to a changing climate. I, I would just want to point out in that article, too, what really stood out for me was sort of the, the matter-of-factness and the kind of casualness of the article. It was like, and, you know, climate change. We might have to change our practices or it might impact ski opportunities, so we're going to do this kind of investment. And, uh, yeah, it, it just really felt casual. It was kind of unusual that way. Yeah, and apparently one of the things they're going to have is an indoor water park. So there you have it. No snow needed. Are you on their payroll or something? <laughs> Maybe uh, they'll send me a free lift ticket. Yeah. Well, they're doing some exciting skiing at Whistler. Um, <laughs> we're looking for sponsorship here on America Apps. That's right. Uh, okay. Did well, I mention the bottle of wine that I'm drinking? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my third glass. <laughs> well, that's it, I think, for our little bit here, Tim. Until next time, I, I've got, like I said, a full slate for you, so... I'm going to pitch some ideas at you for the next time. Uh, what I'd like to do, actually, is we actually have gotten a few reader emails, not reader, listener emails, <laughs> reader, and uh, I wouldn't mind kind of going over those, and maybe you and I could chat a little bit about those and uh, want, and maybe mention some names here and just put the word out of people that are in, uh, engaging with the show. So maybe that's the next, next one we do. That'd be great. Sounds good. All right. Thanks again, Tim. Uh, you have sure. a great day. All right. And you thanks. too, Doug. That's it for us at America Dabs, the Climate Change Podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening in on today's podcast. Thanks to Britt Basil and to Tim Watkins for being today's guest on the show. Don't forget to visit uh, the website, www.americadapts.org, where you can get the show notes. also want to put in a plug for a study abroad course that Britt is leading into Cuba. Now, you're going to have to act fast. I think September 15th is the deadline, but you can go visit her website at ecothropic.org. Com, and that's going to be on my website if you want links to that. But wanted to put a little bit of a plug in for that course that she's leading. Also, if you have questions or if you have comments, feel free to write me at americadaps at gmail.com. I've heard from some of you, and I'm going to read some of your comments on the podcast, but I'd love to keep hearing from all of you. And again, until next week, America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. 